the future self and the future is comprised of a, of a whole bunch of present days and present selves, right? We can focus on both. We can be both living today and for today and be present today, but also plan and, and think about how these different, these different individual presents add up to, to an eventual future. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-word Podcast. I am delighted you are here for another fascinating conversation. This week, I get to speak to Dr. Hal Hirschfeld. We talk about how engaging in relational conversations with our future self, yes, that's right, with our future self, can help us make more informed financial decisions that can perhaps help us enrich our relationship with money. Before we get into this fascinating conversation with Dr. Hirschfield, if you have been enjoying this podcast, thank you. It means a lot. It is a joy to bring these conversations each and every week. You can support the show in one or two ways. You can head over to Apple Podcast and leave a review, or you could share this episode or any other episode with someone who you think might find these conversations insightful. Dr. Hirschfeld is a professor of marketing, behavioral decision-making, and psychology at UCLA's Anderson School of Management. His research is really fascinating as it looks at the intersection of psychology, economics, and really examines why we make decisions we do and how we can improve long-term decisions. In our financial lives, we often struggle with making decisions that are going to benefit our future self. Dr. Hirschfeld has done some fascinating research that has helped us to get a more intimate relationship with our future self so that we can make better decisions today. Hal has published papers in all the top academic journals. His articles have been posted and shared on many of the main media publications. So it was a real treat to talk to Dr. Hal Hirschfeld today. What I really enjoyed about this conversation today is while we have talked at length how our past relationship with money influences how we think, feel, and behave with money, and how our current relationship impacts it as well. Rarely do we look at our future selves. This conversation was unique in the sense that we time travel, or as Dr. Hirschfeld calls it, mental time travel, so that we can help ourselves make decisions that the future Sean or yourself will say, thanks for doing that. Dr. Hirschfeld's professional and academic life has been devoted to helping us bridge the gap between our current self and future self when it comes to making financial decisions. I entered this conversation with lots of notes and questions based upon his book. However, we ditched most of those questions and really just had an engaging, authentic conversation. So I hope you now enjoy this wonderful conversation with Dr. Hal Hirschfeld. Change making money. 
welcome to the show. Hey, Sean, it's um, awesome to be here. Thanks for thanks for inviting me up. It is my pleasure. It is always a delight when I get to chat with authors, our thought leaders in realms of knowledge that I'm interested in. So this is an absolute pleasure. I thought we would start with a question that might help our listeners understand a bit about your background. In life, I know for myself, I find inspiration in many different areas. Sometimes I don't expect to find inspiration from these areas. Can you talk about how a conference in Iceland and vampires provided you with some inspiration? <laughs> yeah, for sure. That's a great question. I wasn't sure where you're going there. This is now about eight or nine years ago, probably nine years ago now, I got invited to go to this little conference in Iceland for people who study time. And I should just be like really clear that like normal academic conferences aren't in places that cool. So I was like, you know what? I think I think I have to go to this. And my wife was able to go too. And like, and so this very funny thing where, you know, for someone who studies how people think about the future, what I hadn't anticipated was that going to a conference is all about being inside a room. And, you know, we get there and like my wife and I have like a day on the ground and then like the conference starts and she's like, I'm going to go like do some sightseeing and all this stuff. And then I'm like, wait, oh no, like I'm in this conference room. Now it was at the Blue Lagoon Spa, which is pretty funny. And I'm sitting in this conference room and my wife is like out exploring the most insanely gorgeous country and I'm in this little room that I could be in and like anywhere in the United States, save for the fact that I know there's this like hot springs outside. My mind is kind of wandering. And the first speaker comes on, L.A. Paul. She is this philosopher. And she starts by going, imagine you have a one-time opportunity to become a vampire. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, wait, what? So it's like right away, like I'm like, you know, there's like a record player be like, Whoop. I'm like back in the room all of a sudden, right? And... She basically says, oh, you know, okay, all of your friends that become vampires, they tell you it's amazing and it's like meaningful and, and they think you would love it because you like to wear dark clothes and you like to stay up late at night and you have exotic food tastes and all this stuff. And she goes, but once you become a vampire, you can't undo the decision. It's like, you're always a vampire. And she basically says, so how do you decide to do it? Because you can't know what you don't know and you can't know how you're preferences will change once you step into this new role. Like you think you know what's, what it's like to be a vampire because your friends have done it, but like you don't really know how you'll change. And she's talking about this and like as background, three days before we left on this trip, my we, we found out that my wife was pregnant. And I'm sitting in the back of the room simultaneously now super engaged and also having this like anxiety attack because I'm like, She's talking about becoming a parent. This is just like, like, oh, what if I, what if I'm not good at it? What don't I know that I don't know? And I'm going, and then she stops and goes, no, of course, I'm talking about becoming a parent. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's like this light bulb goes off and she, she basically says, we can never really know our future selves because we can't predict how change will change us. You don't really know how all the different changes that happen with some sort of transition will impact your feelings and your preferences until you actually go through it. And you can't anticipate it. You can try to think you'll know it, but you won't really until you go through it. And I, that to me was so profound. 
it really resonated with me then and it and it continues to resonate with me nine years later, eight and a half years later. It was the summer of 2015. All the aspects of my brain are going in different directions right now. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm trying to decide where to go. But so this is really, really Actually, here, I'm going to slow my mind thinking down. Nine years later, what would you have said to that panicking Hal? I don't know how old your kids are. I think I've heard you say around five or seven or something. Yeah. What advice would you give that panicking Hal who hadn't gone through that experience? Oh, man, I love that question. I've never thought about that exact way. That, you said, my, my kids are seven and, or no, they're just about eight and four and a half. You know what's funny? Right now, I'd say sometimes it's good not to know. <laughs> you know, you can't, and maybe that's okay. Because, you know, if I had known some of the things, some of the like darker aspects of parenting and those early days mm -hmm. and, you know, the sort of issues that come up and the worries and those, that might have freaked me out. But at the same time, if I had told myself, like, oh, but you are just going to like find so much meaning in this. I, I don't know if I would have known what that meant. So instead, just sort of say, well, you know, you can think of, you can only think so far ahead. But what matters is to try to be present there. That's probably what I would have wanted to hear. And it's funny now because I'm thinking about this mm -hmm. in my mm -hmm. mind. Where I'm going right now is wondering, what would I be saying if you and I have this chat in 10 years about right now? Like, I, mm -hmm. I don't know what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, parenting-wise, that's what we're talking about. But of course, that could apply to so many other things. And what, what would I want to know? What wouldn't I want to know right now about the next 10 years? And it's, I mean, it's, a, it's such a difficult question to, to grapple with. But at the same time, it feels somehow like, a little calming, a little bit more grounded to say like, well, there's only so much you can know, but what you, what you can do is to try to just be in it, you know, and be present right now. Be present or be in it and be present. It really speaks to me. And I have a seven and five-year-old. So, uh, oh, that's I, awesome. I, okay. yeah, <laughs> I, I think if someone would have given me images of me in the middle of the night, changing really poopy diapers and no yes. sleep, I would have stayed in Iceland. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> But to your point, the, the, yeah, no one could ever tell me what this meaning was. So I'm fascinated about our relationships with money and this like experience that we're trying to have with money and all the yeah. different complexities that go along with it. I would like you to touch on the changing selves because I've, I've read your book. I understand it, but just for audience who don't know that. But my, my question centered around this. Sometimes it's good not to know. As someone who's trained as a financial planner, our jobs are to plan or to relentlessly plan and make sure that we get everything right and we predict 35 years out and people retire and then continue retiring for another 30 years. So we're predicting 60 years, which is really impossible. I feel like as a planner, I, I absorbed this rigidity in the way I was thinking in around money, even myself, that, oh no, I got to do this. I got to do this. I was very future oriented without understanding the verbiage. And, yeah. and there's reasons yeah. why. But I noticed the more I let go and just embraced the waves of life that came by, right. I feel like I found more meaning and satisfaction. And I know that the babies, I'm getting back to the, the, the kids story here. I know yeah. when I was trying to put my kids to bed and I wanted them to fall asleep and I had my hand on the back of the baby and I'm like, okay, in five minutes, they're going to go to sleep. And I left like four minutes and a half. And of course, as soon as I walked out, they started crying. I'm like, only if I would have left a little longer. And when I just embraced like them being a kid and not being constrained by time, it seemed like they fell asleep earlier. Anyways, I'm rambling. No, no, no. If no. we, I like it. You know, want to consider our future selves so we can be future orientated and consider that future person so we make good financial decisions. But yet we're also 
tasked with this, your quote, sometimes it's good not to know. How do we dance with both all these versions yeah. of ourselves? Yeah, no, I, I love it. Because, I'm, you know, as you're saying this, one of the things I'm thinking about, and we'll talk about the sort of changing selves in a second too, because I think that's relevant. But one of the things I'm thinking about here is um, it's good not to know or not always know is different than saying don't plan. Because you can, I mean, part, so much of what you do is planning, like you said, right? And planning doesn't mean you have to know exactly how things are going to turn out, right? In fact, you'd probably say like, that'd be a fool's errand, right? Mm-hmm. But my guess is that, you know, ironically, the planning is what allows you to sort of step back and like just be in it. I, I forget the exact phrasing that you you said a minute ago, but I think that that really, <laughs> the way that you said it, the, the gist of that resonated with me because my guess is that it's a little bit easier to be more relaxed if there's some degree of planning, but, you know, with the knowledge that things change, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so, you know, I think, I know that I said, yeah, I talked about the changing selves in a second, but like to just throw it back to you, like, how often do you think that your clients are, you know, wanting to know exactly how things will happen and work out, or they're just really wanting to know that, like, there's a plan in place, or that there's like a cushion, or like, what, what's the driving force there? I'll speak from them, but also, I guess, a, a personal lens that I've really changed over the years is that, to your point, this plan, I think, for, for a lot of our clients, is a safety net. And it's like, there's something there. And I feel as a planner, as my perspective has changed, that it's okay if the numbers don't go according to plan. But to your point, it was the planning process that helped out. And I guess not attached to a certain desired outcome. You need to have $50,000 saved up by this point in time. I think that's where our clients, and I know myself, we're disappointed because we know these plans don't come to fruition. But having this idea that, oh no, I have a plan. We're going to be okay. You know, if you're surfing, it's like the wave didn't come, but I'm going to be ready for the next wave. So I think it's detaching from the desired technical outcomes that allow us to catch the next wave, so to speak. Yeah, no, I think that's right. That that makes a lot, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I I mean, you know, and I think that um, it's so interesting because there's so much of the sort of, um, recognition that things will change. But also, I mean, I think some of that also boils down to like, at least wanting to know that some of the aspects of me right now are carried out later. Like when 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 these plans and theory come to fruition or don't come to fruition, right? Which, I mean, this is, you know, the gist of what we were, I know we were just sort of going back and forth about this, but part of the way that I think about, you know, ourselves over time has to do with this idea that like, in many ways, we think of our future selves as if they're different people, right? And that, I mean, I, we can talk about the research there and whatnot, but the but the gist the gist of all of this is that even though our future selves may seem like different people, what matters is the sort of emotional connection between who I am now and who I will be in X number of years, five, ten, whatever the horizon is. And I think you know, in your line of work, that horizon can be very long, right? But it but it also has like shorter ones along the way, right? Like I can't get to a if I'm 45 and I'm going to retire at 65, I can't get there unless I also think about my future self next year. And like this summer, like the vacation I take this summer will impact how much money I have for my kids' college, you know, college and so forth and so on and so forth, right? So, but anyway, I'm just reacting to some of the things you said. And I think that this sort of idea that there's connections there, but we can be a little bit looser with like what actually happens is really, it's really important. Your idea of the emotional connections interests me. And I would say like, 
in the money world, we all, we talk about emotional connections and it's often like fear-based or like, I don't have enough. And like, here's your financial plan. It's got these red bars, like feel emotion and it kind of borders around shame. When you say emotional connection, how have you seen within your work, the research, how can we bridge this? Like, I would say positive co emotional connection so that it's operating out of a lens of like, oh, I get to do this versus like, oh shit, uh, like, like the scarcity mode. And I, you know, I think a lot of our planning has been around, like, you're not going to have enough to send your kid to school. How do you feel about that? And now I'm operating this like scarcity, not enough lens, as opposed to, is there a way to bridge that emotional connection? I guess in more, they're uh, not therapeutic, but uh, relational context. Yeah. I mean, and relational is really a good way to put it, right? Because at the end of the day, these are relationships that exist between present and future selves and present and past selves in the same way. I mean, this is the way that I think about it in the same way that there are relationships that exist between us and our spouses or us and our kids or us and our best friends. I mean, the, the, the catch is that our future selves don't really like physically, they don't, they do not really, they don't exist <laughs> right now. It's just, you know, it's just in our imagination. Right. But you asked, are there ways to, to bridge this? Right. So practically speaking, so, you know, I think there's there's a couple that, you know, the research has looked at. Um, I'll give you three quick ones. So the gist of which is make those selves more and more vivid. If I can move from abstraction to vivid, that can make me move from sort of like not feeling connected to feeling more connected, to feeling more emotions, you know, to understanding, empathetically understanding that future self, right? And so... You know, one exercise I really like that's been popularized by Anne Wilson is the one of the researchers on this work and Yuta Shishima up there in, um, well, anyway, in Canada. They've asked people to write letters to their future selves and then from their future selves. So you write a letter to that future self and then sort of step into the shoes of the future self and write a letter back. Other work, you know, there's a, there's a paper that came out just this past year by uh, Charles Chu and Brian Lowry. This came out after I worked on my book, so I didn't even have it in the book. And I, but I love the intervention. What they do is they, um, they have people write about, tell me a narrative of what an expected future would look like versus a surprising future. And when you get people to write about like, what, what might an expected future look like? It actually bonds them stronger to their future selves. Because you know what, what it ends up doing is sort of like, like cuts away the sort of like noise that, you know, if you get me to think about the future, just generally speaking, my mind goes into these places of like, well, what are all the crazy things that could happen that I can't control? Like another pandemic or inflation suddenly starts rising, you know, even more and, and so on and so forth. Maybe that's, maybe I'm sure revealing like my own sort of like anxious and neurotic personality. But, but if I say an expected future, well, now it's it like almost like turns the volume down a little bit, like just makes things a little bit more calm and a little more stable. And that exercise has been shown to create a stronger sense of connection to future selves. My own work has played around with visualizations, actually showing people what they'll look like in the future, you know, which now, of course, any, uh, like <laughs> anybody on TikTok could tell you is, 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 you know, a big trend at the moment, right? Now, I, I don't think just being like exposed to a single image that of what I'll look like in the future is going to make me more connected to that future self. But I think the visualization is a tool that can be used alongside some of these other ones that can really help create more sort of color and vividness around, around a possible future self. Your, your work with the Bank of Mexico, that was, maybe just speak to that, but was that just 
if my I, I don't have it in front of me, but it was a single. Was it not just a single image or very quick? Like it was yeah, nothing. It was that was a single image. So what we did, we partnered. This was a, in collaboration with Ideas Forty Two. They're a sort of a behavioral science consultancy in New York, and we partnered with with a large bank in Mexico and sent out email blasts to a, a close to fifty thousand customers. Half of them got a series of standard messages, you know, imploring them to save more for the future. Half got those messages plus the opportunity to see an image of their future self. They could, you know, upload a picture and press a button and then it spits back to them. We call it an aged selfie. (laughs) And uh, half that got those images. So so first off, I should say, you know, just, and this is, uh, I'm going to get into the details for a a minute here. But um, anytime you try to do a campaign like this, the the conversion's pretty low. (laughs) You know, you probably know this, right? It's just, if I shoot out an email to... 50,000 people and I'm the bank, like I don't expect that many people to, I mean, think about how many times you respond, right? So what we end up finding is that, you know, there's, there's a low base rate in terms of the people who actually make a contribution to their, called a 401k, but this is a personal pension in Mexico is what it's called. There's about a 16% increase in the likelihood of making a contribution if you get those images. In theory, now, I don't know, I don't know this for sure because we didn't like follow up with a survey. But in theory, what it's doing is making that future more real and possibly ramping up the emotions that I might feel in thinking about that future self. But you know, it's equally important to note that a huge portion of people did nothing because mm-hmm. <laughs> you know it's uh, an email blast, right? But um, I find this really promising because it's such a low touch way of interacting with somebody. So if that can get, if that can move the needle a little bit. Now, what happens if if I'm a coach or a financial advisor or a teacher or an educator, and I say, let's sit down together and I'm going to show you an image or I'm going to have you write a letter or we're going to really think and visualize that future self. That to me now, that starts getting into the territory of, of you know, possibly getting someone to more deeply engage with their future selves. Self. <laughs> so, uh, yes. Yeah, so, and the, I found it quite interesting is like such a low point or touch point, like to your point, and a decent amount of like 16% is 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 good 16 percent. i should say 16 percent increase you know like, increase so it's like i forget we, from, from one to the other it's a low low base rate but anyway i, I don't want to <laughs> survey the average financial literacy course and see the increase i don't think would be anywhere near two percent so now so if we have these like changing selves like we're doing these really i i think that letter exercise i mean i was even envisioning an aged image of yourself in the future and, and writing a letter to that yeah yeah but so like it, it's bringing up like it's almost allowing us, and I know you've talked about mentally time traveling. So let's talk about this mental time travel. Like, what is our sure. brain doing when we write that? And my, I guess it's a two question. Explain your idea of this mental time travel. Sure. And some people innately more like emotionally more attuned to be able to relate to the different versions of ourselves at different points in time. Mm-hmm. These are great questions. So okay, first off, just to you know, make sure everyone's on the same playing field. Mental time travel, that sounds, it sounds so like sci-fi when I say it out <laughs> loud. But, you know, I mean, if you think about time travel, it's traveling through time, right? Mental time travel is any time we think about a time that's not now, the future or the past. Now, I mean, that could be like, a, I'd be lying if I said like, a, there's a one point when we first started talking, I suddenly remembered whether or not my wife and I made a plan for dinner for the kids tonight. And I was fully, I was just want to say I was fully attentive, no. but, but, I, but I had that quick thought, right? And 
in a way, that's mental time travel because I jumped ahead and I thought, are, what's going to be like when we get home later? Am I going to be racing around or is there something? That, oh, I remember we do have a plan. That's a form of mental time travel. There are other longer, much longer term forms, right? Like if I think ahead to retirement, if I think back to my childhood, if I think about, you know, my dad and, <laughs> and you know, his birthday. And then that makes me think about how my kids will think about me when I'm his agent. I mean, there's, it gets really complicated really fast, right? Now the, you know, the reality is that we're really good at mental time travel in so much as we can do it, right? Like in terms of like, if you look at species, like, like if you look at all the animal species, I'd make a bet that we are the most sophisticated in mental time travel. There's debate about whether other animals can do it. And in fact, I think some have convincingly said like, if, you know, if a bird stores food for another time, like that's a form of mental time travel. We're sophisticated in our ability to do it, but we, we don't always do it that well in so much as, you know, if I regret a decision I made earlier, because now I'm facing the consequences, you could argue that maybe I could have sharpened my mental time traveling skills <laughs> and made a different decision, right? Now, you asked another question, which was like, are some people sort of innately better at this than others? I don't know if I would say like sort of innately one way or the other, but you know, one of the things we do know is that people exist along a continuum in terms of how much they relate to their future selves. One of the things we know from neuroscience research is that the future self is seen as another person in the brain. So in other words, the brain activity that comes about when you think of a future self, it, it looks like the activity that comes about when you think of another person. But there's differences between people on that. So some people have like a really big gap in the brain where that future self, you know, almost looks the same way that you would, you know, visualize a stranger. And other people, when they think of the future self and they're getting scanned and we're looking at the brain, the activity looks a little bit more like the way that they would react to a best friend or a kid or a parent or themselves right now. So in other words, I don't know if I'll go so far as to say that we're sort of innately different because... There's a, environmental experiences, of course, that shape the way that we relate to our future selves. And I'd really want to know, like, if I were to track somebody over time from when they were born, like, how would their relationships with their future selves sort of unfold and do different people start at different baselines and so on. But generally speaking, people are on a continuum here. I would suspect the more we, we engage with future orientations of ourselves, I think the more compassionate we would become. To our future selves? To our future selves, yeah. yeah. Or I guess even to both. I guess where I'm thinking is like, I actually talked about our interview today with my physiotherapist this morning. I like running. I have arthritis in my hips. And I, I sometimes get flare-ups when my excruciating pain. But I go get some needling and it releases. And I always am supposed to do these ball exercises to roll this ball into my hip joint. And But when the pain goes away, I just don't do it. I just run. He's like, you only come in here when you need like intense help. He's like, are you doing your exercise? Like, no, I'm not. And I said, hopefully today, Hal can get me to convince myself that I should roll for 10 minutes so that my future self doesn't feel this pain. But I guess I, I digress from that. It seems like my current self, the compassion question came from this, is that my current self is one always giving for my future self. So that's where like that, I guess the compassion lens was coming from is how, does, how do I convince my current self that you're doing a good job and I know you're always giving, but at some day, this will even out. You know what? I, I love that. You and I have some similarities, right? And I really love running too. And then I get IT band uh, syndrome. It's really stiff. And then 
if I don't stretch the right way, then it's like I can run a certain amount and then I injure myself and then I, it's longer until I can run again, right? But but if only I were to do the right stretches and the right exercises, you know? And so what's so interesting here is that I think, you know, yes, of course, there's some compassion for the future self, but there's also another, you know, issue that arises and you put your finger on it, which is that it's current me who's always sacrificing for future me, right? So do you want to go that run? Before you do it, you've got to spend the 10 minutes doing the ball exercise. And like, that's not, that's not nearly as rewarding as going on the run or like just mm-hmm. getting there. You don't have the time. I'm sure you and I have the same set of excuses for why not yeah. to do it, right? <laughs> you know, and so part of it to me is like wondering, how can I make it more likely that I'll do that? Like do that exercise. Sure. Let's ramp up the compassion. Maybe that'll help a little bit. But then is there a way to make that pain point, that sacrifice from the future self, a little bit less like a sacrifice, a less like a pain point? Like, is there a show you're watching that you'll only let yourself watch while you're doing the ball exercise, right? Katie Milkman calls this temptation bundling, where I, I bundle up a temptation, you know, with the pain, right? And then the pain is less painful, but I can't, I can't do the tempting thing, you know, unless I'm pairing it. With, with the painful thing, right? You know, something else that comes to mind, it's a, it's a new project I've been working on with uh, my collaborator here at UCLA, Ali Lieberman. We're trying to motivate people by reminding them that one day they won't be able to do X thing the way that they can now. You know, I'm not trying to say like, oh, you one day you'll die. Like, but like, like, it's funny, right? Because I mean, this, I remember, you know, this is so, in this way, so cheesy, but I remember taking like a, a Peloton workout <laughs> and, you know, the, trainer said something like, you know, you don't have to go on a run. You get to go on a run, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, it was like, and I was like, oh, this is is like something that'd be like on a poster in a, in a gym. And yet I was like, you know, it's such a good point, right? You're so lucky that you get to able to do this. You have the time, the mobility, like all those things, right? You know, we've, we've actually been exploring this in the context of exercise, but also relationships and parenting where it's like, you know, what, you know, my, son is whining at me for the millionth time to do, to like help him with something. I'm like, I, I just want you to do this on your own so I can do my thing. Like we're in the same room. And I'm like, one day, like he is not going to want me to be around him and do this shit and stuff. And the perspective that like one day I won't be able to do X the way I can now, like one day I won't be able to run nearly as much as I can now. So might I extend the life of my running life a little bit more by doing the ball exercise? Like, huh. Maybe, you know, like, I'm not saying it's a cure-all, but like, I'm wondering if that perspective could help a little bit. I feel like it would help a lot. Actually, the other day, I play men's league hockey We with a bunch of guys we used to play junior hockey with, and our games are at 10 o'clock at night now, and I was just complaining, like, I'm so tired, like, I usually skip them. And he's like, Sean, you remember how we always, like, reminisce about our junior days, like, it was fun time? And he's like, when we're 50, we're going to be doing that about this. I'm like... That's true. So it's to your point of saying like, I feel like, and and, I mean, the kids, uh, I I feel that all the time is like, when I frame myself like, hey, they're they're not going to want to be around me one day. Yep, 100%. So this gets me thinking about end of something. And you said not (laughs) to make it about end of life, end of mortality, but I think it's quite motivating actually. Like, I guess the stoic way of thinking is like, like, end of life is a thing. We die. Yeah. And end of picking your kid up for the last time, end of men's league hockey. Yeah. We Have die. You, and we die. Punchline. 
But I guess it goes into, you've talked about time expenditures as well. We have, we have a finite amount of time, like 80, whatever years, 90, it doesn't matter how many years. How, if at all, have you looked at forms of end of something, maybe end of life, but can this be a motivating factor for us to time, mental time travel to be like, okay, I guess I'm kind of answering my question is we've kind of talked about this, but have you done any research on end of life or end of being able to yeah. do something? It's a great question. So, so there's a couple of things that come to mind. My very first paper that I ever worked on in grad school was all about meaningful endings and how they provoke mixed emotions. So, you know, we were we were calling it poignancy, which is a sort of, you know, positive mixed with like a tinge of sadness. And it, it, it specifically, we're, this was a period of time where I was really interested in emotions and we were trying to document, you know, do do mixed emotions occur? This is a very different sort of topic, but you know, we were looking at things like graduations and weddings and births as a funny thing. You know, you wouldn't say there's a graduation's an ending of sorts, but you know, is a wedding an ending? Is a birth an ending? And it's like, yeah, because they're an ending of one chapter and the the beginning of another. And the way that my you know, my graduate mentor Laura Carstensen, who's just an incredible observer of life, I will say, you know, the, one of the ways that that we put it, that she really prompted was the idea that there's positivity about progressing through life and then there's some sadness about ending one thing and moving on to the next. Now, this is different than like true endings, like an end of life, end of life yeah, yeah, actually yeah. over, right? But, but I think there's something meaningful there because those sort of mixed emotions are also what can, they both make the experience more meaningful and also a more meaningful experience can prompt the mixed emotions, right? So, so that's one, that's like a tangential way of answering your question, but I'm more recently really interested in understanding like how we can motivate people to make decisions surrounding end of life issues, you know, from a very practical perspective, advanced directives, wills, trust, the, you know, the, the, the decisions that sort of surround the end of life phase, those are just not, they're not exciting decisions to think about. They're anxiety provoking, you know, even, even retirement, even with that, at least I can say, well, you know, if you do this right, like you could have some pretty great years ahead of you, you know, but with, with end of life, it's like, what am I solving for here? It, you know, it's funny. I just tomorrow have a meeting with the director of our palliative care research network here at UCLA. One of the things we're trying to think about is how can we motivate people to, fill out advanced directives online? What's the language we should use? What's the sort of like triggers we should think about? It's not a problem in my mind that's like the other problems that behavioral scientists try to address. Because, you know, if we, I try to get you to get a vaccine. I can try to get you to sign up for a savings account. Those are like often single shot decisions that are not so heavily burdened by feelings of sort of like existential... <laughs> existential questions and mortality and whatnot, right? So I don't have an answer yet, but um, this is also in collaboration with a guy named Joey Reef, who's an old student of mine. It's just a really thoughtful. One of the ideas he came up with was like, maybe we should imply that, you know, you've got, you have to make this decision. You can't force someone to, but maybe we should imply like, oh, this is something you should do before your next doctor's appointment. Not manipulating, just sort of saying like, it's almost like a like a, a little bit of a, it's not quite a default, but it's like a strong suggestion. You know, because the, the research shows that clear end of life plans are associated with better deaths, both for the the dire and the loved ones. When, you know, you hear these stories about loved ones who are not only dealing with the grief of losing their parent or spouse, but then also 
They're dealing with all of the administrative hassle. And then the worry that the person didn't can leave the world behind in the way that they would have wanted to. And all those questions, you know, which I'm not saying it's so simple that if we just have a simple advanced directive, it solves everything, but it goes a long way. Oh, it's certainly, I mean, uh, I, I live in Canada and I've seen so many times that there's issues because many different facets of estate planning haven't been put in place. Um, guardianship of a children is a big oh, one. Yeah. It almost makes me think that this idea of writing a letter, like yourself on the deathbed, writing a letter. Yeah. Totally agree. I mean, it's like, how do you get someone to do that? You know, I think that's part of the thing. And I'd love to, it's a question I'm trying to grapple with and figure out. It's hard to, it's hard to figure out though. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm with you. <laughs> and, and you mentioned retirement, how it can be maybe a little bit, I don't know the word you said, but I got the sense is easier than this, this medical directive question. Yet when we think about retirement, this is a huge change. You talk of it's an ending, ending of working. I often think that we have false emotions or emotions are creating a false sense of what retirement could be. Have you thought about how your work can be applied to making these decisions? A is like along the journey to retirement, but also be making that decision on when is the right time to retire? Oh yeah. It's, I love this question. Yeah. So it's, it's something I'm really trying to grapple with now. I don't, I, I, I should say I've thought about it. Don't have an answer. I actually have a paper that, that came out, I think earlier this past year in 2023 with Suzanne Shu, Adam Greenberg and Steven Spiller, some friends and colleagues where we tried all different interventions to try to change someone's social security claiming date. This is on a U.S. sample, right? And, and that's not the same decision as when to retire because those two things, of course, don't have to be perfectly correlated. But you know, what, one of the things that we're finding is like having people write in more vivid detail about what the future looks like and what the you know future others and future family looks like and whatnot. But you're you know I, the the question that I'm really excited about is like what makes for a good transition? What makes for a good, you know, it's not just when to retire, but how to do it and how to do it in a way that is meaningful. And earlier, before we start recording, you're talking about like, what well, you know, how do you talk to clients about making that period of time one that they really are satisfied with, that they're happy to be in? And, and it's so hard because you, I don't know what portion of your life you spent, but I imagine it's a huge part of your life working, <laughs> you know, the average person. And then suddenly you go and it's, I think, the old notion of retirement that you, you know, you work and work and work and then now you're golfing or sitting on the porch. Like that, I doubt that reflects much of the sort of current reality, but I don't have the data on it. But it, I mean, it would be so interesting to me to say, well, you know, what, what predicts that transition? What predicts that that transition is done well? And then how can I implement those things in my own life? Right. And, you know, when do I start thinking about it? I mean, there's, there's got to be a million different questions there. That would be mm -hmm. relevant. Do you um, have a hunch? Yeah, I do. My hunch is that the people who do it well, and when I say do it well, I mean the people who either maintain their level of happiness or increase in it, right? I mean, because this is a, another question of what, what does it mean to do well? My, my hunch is that there are people who have an identity that is probably not 100% wrapped up in what they do. Mm -hmm. They have other interests. And my guess is that they take pleasure in the people that they're around and seek out ways to be around those people, right? My, my father-in-law, so he, he's been retired for a, little, for a while now. And he had, you know, I was asking about this over, uh, over the holidays. And he said, you know, he, he, and he was an executive at a 
seasoning company here in, in Los Angeles. And he said, you know, if I didn't run Lowry's, Lowry's season salt, he said, if I didn't run Lowry's, somebody else would have. <laughs> uh-uh. <laughs> and you know, now, then again, it was a huge part of his identity. He loved his job. But I thought that was so interesting because you can both love your job and have it be a part of your identity and also have the sophistication to recognize that somebody else would have done it too. So if that's the case, I might as well also have other things that define me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, you know, it's like, I, I would say he is somebody who's thriving uh, in yeah. retirement, you know. I, I got a, a good question. Well, I think uh, a good question for me <laughs> about that. But wait, did you say Larry's seasoning salt, like the the red canister? Yes, yes, oh, yes. You know, I it. remember you know it. cheese right. toast. My mom would put that on there, and it was so good. <laughs> wow, that's it, awesome! Our, oh, that was a staple in our house. It was you just get the Larry's salt. Or, how did you pronounce it? Oh, the, Lowry's, but I mean, Lowry's. Yeah, well, yeah. That, I mean, it, yeah. That's I so haven't funny. heard that yeah, for like 20 years. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, he, he worked, that was his first job out of college and he went all the way up, retired as president. Uh, really? Like, yeah. Is it still around? It's still around. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, our house certainly is always stocked. Um, <laughs> Have you ever had a cheese toast with it? No, but now this is, a, you know, it's so funny because everybody has their different, I put it on hamburgers, but now you say that, I'm like, well, that's an interesting idea. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to try it. Is it so what really fascinates me is like, yeah, like life is, with money, it's so complex. Like we're trying to make sense of all these different competing emotions that we have in around money. We attach so many meanings to money. But what you said around retirement really resonates with me is that people who have like, or can detach the sense of self from what they did in retirement or working up to retirement is what I've seen people who are able to start enjoying retirement and not yeah. losing that sense of self or identity. I don't know what the technical version we'd be losing. Yeah. Knowing that we have these changing selves, how does that relate though to our identity? Like, so if we have these changing sense of selves, yeah. how does it relate to identity? Yeah, it's so interesting. It's a fascinating question. You've like stopped me in my tracks a little bit as I think about it, right? Because when we talk about identity, there's this great work by Nina Strominger. She's a professor at Penn where she talks about, you know, sometimes people have defined the self as, you know, sort of your core moral identity, who you are on sort of a moral level, you know, and like the, the, she talks about these essential moral traits. Like if I were to define you, I wouldn't, I don't, I don't know that I would say it's because of, you know, you, you play hockey or you're Canadian. I guess those two are the same, right? But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but or, you know, I might, it would be about, are you kind? Is your sense of humor sort of biting or is it more soft? You know, these, these sorts of traits that sort of represent who a person is in part of how they, in part in terms of how they relate to others. And so now I'm thinking about this, I'm wondering, you know, if my identity, if it should be more that as we start thinking about ourselves changing over time, and maybe that eases the tension involved in, transitioning, right? Transitioning from sort of working life to retired life or whatever. I'm, I'm, I mean, this is just sort of exploring and speculating, mm-hmm. but, but, you know, if I, if I do define myself in terms of what I do rather than sort of who I am, then I, I would imagine it makes it a lot harder, right? To, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to make that transition. It's making me think about these, that I really like the letter idea. This thought experiment is yeah. when I'm writing that letter, even taking an angle of writing myself like, hey, what would I like you to know about life or living a good life? Like I've often thought about if I'm 90 years old, what do I write to myself today to say, hey, this is what I learned to have a happy, healthy life. Yeah. It seems to then start putting that 
I guess, identity or that self back to me as opposed to like, I am this person. Yeah, I think it brings us to the broader context that, wait, wait, no, life is like, I guess, in ourselves. I, I'm rambling here, but you, we talked earlier about that planning. And I find that for myself, when I started to do more of these thought experiments, that I started to uncover what was meaningful in my life. You mentioned around people that are enjoyable. And it allowed me to detach from those expected outcomes my financial plan had. But I kept planning because right. it gave me that security. And it let me like embrace this unfolding of life as it happened because I was confident that I had a plan in place. Yeah, it gave you that sort of like cushion. Yeah. But I think doing your like these letters allowed me to get to that position. And so that's my ramble. Yeah. One point on that is a friend of mine, we wrote a, an album about my money story, like a full-length music album. One of the lyrics, I'm like, wow, this really kind of goes towards what we're talking about in your work. But the lyric is, the future is a gift, but somehow we find our treasure in the here and now. Oh, that's cool. I love that. So, But that's the thing that fascinates me. So I guess, what is your take on like understanding like the future self, it's important. It gives us perspective. I, it helps us make better decisions for our future. But today is the only day I actually live. I think what I like about that is that you've kind of dialed into this idea that the future self and the future is comprised of a, of a whole bunch of present days and present selves, right? And so, you know, one of the topics I'm really interested in is this idea that we, you know, we deprive our future selves if we focus on them too much because you miss out on the, all the todays that add up to that that future version of us. And you don't want to, you don't want to get there and look back and say, I missed it. You know, my head was buried in the sand or something. So I think the point that you're raising very much dovetails with that one, which is to say that, you know, everything we do right now, and this is the only, this is the only time that we're sort of living in, right? Everything that we do right now adds up to those futures, right? And so I, I like it too, because it kind of, I think it's suggestive of the idea that we can we can focus on both. We can be both living today and for today and be present today, but also plan and, and think about how these different these different individual presents add up to to an eventual future. Mm-hmm. That's, I see the time. It has been flying for me. But yet, I, I don't say this because I'm talking to you and you're on my podcast and I'm apparently Canadian, so apparently we're nice. It's not true. <laughs> it's not true. But I'm not saying this just because you're on my podcast. Your work actually has helped me I guess steer my ship, continue to steer my ship in the direction that I think is worthwhile by pulling myself out to the future orientation. Because I think I like, I went from a planner, always future orientated, then being like COVID kind of like brought me, I'm like, no, live now. And it was, I, I found your work. I'm like, no, it's like what you said, both can exist. Yeah. And yeah. I personally find it really useful. It's like that future self does rely on me today. Yeah. But he doesn't have to deprive. So it's just this coexisting, I guess. That's great. Thank you for sharing that with me. I, I appreciate that. I have one final question. We kind of danced around this, but I've asked everyone on the podcast, so I, I would like to ask you. But let's imagine now that you're at end of life. However old you are, you are. And you are sitting on a porch looking out at a view that brings you peace, ease, and contentment. Whatever that is, mountains, meadows, it doesn't matter, to the ocean if you're in LA. And you decide to write a letter to your children's children on what you learned is a key to have a happy and healthy relationship with money, what would it be? Wow. Okay. I'll borrow from my friend, Brian Portnoy. I'll use it as a tool that can fund contentment and, you know, always be grateful that you, 
that you have it, but don't necessarily need it, right? So find contentment and, you know, where you can with as little money as possible. And then also, you know, when you have it, use it to fund even more contentment. I guess that's what I would say. I have to think about it more, but I love, I love that. I love that question. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. I had some notes to talk specifically about your book. We will save those for everyone to go get a copy of your book and read it because it is an excellent book that helps Thanks, you Sean. really consider that future future self ourselves, I believe you would yeah. say. Yeah. Where would you point people towards online where they can find more information about you? Uh, you can go to halhurstfield.com. Everything is there. And then you know LinkedIn or Twitter. And then the book's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and anywhere else you can buy books. So really honored and delighted to be, to be a guest here talking about all this stuff. Sean, thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in this week to the Most Hated F-Word podcast. I hope you thought about your future self and maybe some decisions that you can do today, tomorrow, or the near future that your future self will say, thank you for doing that. And if you're still listening, that means perhaps you enjoyed the episode or you just left it playing in the background. Regardless, you can support the show in one of two ways. You can head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review or send this episode to a family, friend, colleague, or anyone you think who might enjoy this conversation. Until next week, have yourself a good one. I'm on a mountain without a top. My wealth is measured and now I spend my time. But now I write a freedom story with every breath inhaled. Money is not the boat of life. It's just the wind in the sail.